0: Hello and welcome to This Week, a podcast that brings you conversations about Africa in the news, from pop culture to politics, from the comical to the serious, in all corners of Africa. We bring you controversial news and themes with a fresh, educational, informative, and diverse perspective, and challenge longstanding beliefs and ways of thinking and doing things. My name is Peter, and I'll be your host today. Make sure to subscribe to Leaders of Africa's This Week in your favorite podcast app and on YouTube. We are on Apple iTunes, Google Podcasts, and more. Finally, join the Discord community to continue the conversation. How are you guys doing, Ghana? How's your week been?
1: It's been a very interesting week, full of a lot of excitement and uh, a lot of new revelation in terms of issues of interest on the continent and history in the world.
0: Absolutely. And one of the things that I've been following was the power transition ongoing in Zambia. As everyone knows, Zambia held elections very recently. And the opposition leader won big time. That is Hichilema won the election overwhelmingly. And there's a power transition going on in Zambia. So that's been on my mind this week. But I'm curious to know what has been on your mind. Let's start with you, Violet. What's been on your mind this week?
2: Hey, Peter. What's been on my mind this week is Tanzania. And as we all know, they do have their first female president, Mama Samia Suluhu. It's been heralded as a new era, both for women and for the country as a whole, because it is their first female president. Before she came into power, there had been a lot of backlash, especially from people who still felt that that was an office that was befitting of a man. And they did dismiss her because of her gender. But then Alas, she became the president. But then recently she made comments at a ceremony that was celebrating the victory of the men's national team in our original football championship and likened the women basically to the men. She did say that as much as she did appreciate the work that the sportswomen were doing, she said that they did have flat chests and it was easy for them to pass as men and not as women. And she did say that when it came time for these women to get married, they wouldn't be able to get married because they are not attractive. And if they were taken home by their men, it would be possible for the men's mothers to ask their sons if they had brought men home instead of women because they were flat chested and mostly muscular. And this has raised a lot of contention with a lot of backlash coming in from women's rights activists and from different parts of the country, especially online on social media, where, you know, the backlash is mostly saying that they didn't expect the president, particularly she being the first female president, having passed through a lot of misogynistic comments when she was becoming president to say this about the Twigas stars, the women's national football team. And so that's what's been on my mind this week.
0: So Ghana, what do you think is behind this? This is a really curious comment talking about the physical attributes of the women's sports team. I always think about how presidents talk about the sports teams that participate in major events, such as the Olympics, as well as the World Cup. And it's usually quite positive, right? Very encouraging. So what do you think is behind some of these comments, Ghana?
1: I think it's a quite unfortunate comment by the highly regarded president, Mama Samia, a woman having to describe other women in such a disparaging manner. That said, I'm playing the role of a devil's advocate. She possibly is speaking from the perspective of humor. And to me, there are certain humors that have no place in our society. And she was possibly speaking from the perspective of what African men appreciate. Because there are different things that people in different places, they appreciate. And I do understand that African man, there are certain things they appreciate appreciating women. Maybe she was speaking from that perspective and she was trying to be humorous. But that said, this is one of those jokes that we really need to be sensitive about because it may be discouraging some of our few women from participating in a sporting events. But there's always a side to the other story that we may not know. One of the things we like to know from Mama Samia fully was that she follows a program at the Leaders of Africa is, to, uh, is for her to give some clarifications, whether she was misrepresented, whether she was trying to say something and ended up miscommunicating. Otherwise, I felt personally disappointed about the intonation, but that said again, I also understand that there are certain things that African men appreciate in African women. Possibly she was speaking from that perspective.
2: Ghana, I'm glad you bring that up because from what I know, I don't think that she was making a joke. And she also was calling for more funding for women in sports. As somebody who is into gender and all things gender, especially for women, I don't think she was making a joke. And... I think that as you said that she was coming from a place of what African men tend to want in African women which is more flesh and you know sizable portions of particular body parts and I'm just thinking that perhaps maybe she could have given more context to what she was saying and put it in context but she just said it in a direct manner that of course, created all this backlash because it appeared to have been her own opinions. But Ghana, as you said, she could have been echoing the sentiments of African men. But I do think that perhaps a little bit of context might have been better because she seemed to be coming from a place of concern because she was calling for the government to take better care of these athletes after they retire. She said that, you know, if you look at their lives in the future, And I quote, when the legs are tired from playing, when they don't have the health to play, what life will they be living? Because most likely they may not be the preferred, attractive, first choices for wives. So maybe a little bit of context could have helped, but then because the context was lacking, then of course it left a wide berth for her to be attacked. But because she was calling for more protections for these women, I do think that it was coming from a place of concern.
3: I'm just so confused about this whole thing. First of all, what does what African men like have to do with these girls playing their sport? Like, what would even bring that up? That's the first thing. And then mm-hmm. the second thing is, even though we know that African men like sizes and portions, This was a chance to change that mindset that because a woman looks like this, she's not quality woman. Instead of using her platform to reinforce certain stereotypes, she could have used that platform to promote these women and talk about their value to the country, to the community, to the culture. What you guys have said kind of makes sense, but What I'm saying is there simply just was no need for
2: it. I agree, Gloria. But then I also think that we need to recognize that. And I think I've mentioned this before on the show that we all are a product of our culture. And the social cultural infrastructure of Africa is quite interesting in terms of the patriarchy and misogyny in general. So Eventually, even when we have policymakers in place, elected officials, the presidency and everything else, these are all products of the social cultural infrastructure. So I wouldn't be surprised because, I mean, if you said something like this, say, for example, in the United States, that would be a scandalous scandal if there's anything like that. But because it is, say, Tanzania, those are comments that are made every day and in some way it has become normalized. And it goes back to what I kept saying that we need to create more awareness because as much as we may blame the president and again, being president, she needs to be much more careful with her words because her words carry weight. And again, it may point to some of the questions that were coming on in the past about whether she was really ready to be president, because I mean, there were people who said she didn't deserve to be president or someone else could say, well, if the past president had not passed on, she wouldn't be president. So was she really ready? So comments like this only add more fuel to that fire. However, she does come from a different generation, because again, I think we can all agree that As much as we're all Africans, the different sets of generations do have different ideas. So she does come from a generation that normalized certain things such as that. But you may find that there's a different generation of men that values different attributes of women as well. So that could have also played a part. And so as much as I don't agree with what she said and Gloria, I I completely agree with you saying that this was totally uncalled for and this was a time for her to use her platform to change the narrative about women. But she is also a product of that social cultural infrastructure and its long lasting impacts as we see it. Well, it's rather unfortunate as
4: all of you have said that that conversation was no need. Like she didn't need to bring it up because like most of the time women that played football especially on the continent and in Africa tend to be more masculine and people tend to call them different names and say all sorts of things against them I used to be very active when I was in college in sports and I go to places and people start calling me man man woman like all this nickname which was not uncalled for I think that as you guys have said that we, we are in a society where we feel like everything has to do with flesh, like men like this, men like that. No, I think we have to move away from that conversation. She has flat chest and so on. It's because she's playing active sports. She's very active in sport. She's using all her muscles to play and also to bring glory to the country. So I, I feel like there is a need for mindset change here. And I believe that she's not the first person that I've said that. But because she's a president and she's a leader and she was saying in in the midst of the media and also in front of a lot of people, that's why it's come in the mainstream and we're all talking about it and there's a lot of criticism and backlash against it. But I'm sure that a lot of people have said this to young ladies that are playing sports or that are very active in sport. Some of this conversation actually discourage women from going into active sports. Because if you go into sports and people start calling you names, people are saying all sorts of things against you. It's, it's a sort of discouragement, even for you to advance or progress in the and activity that you are in, rather than focusing on this kind of messaging about marriage. You are skinny, you look like a man, and you're not going to find anyone to marry, or you are too active. You can't give birth. I think we have to move away from that. We should rather invest in our games. We should rather encourage young men and women especially the young women, to get active in sport. And I believe that sports is also one of the ways that we can address the problem of unemployment that is actually a challenge facing most of the youth on the continent. So I believe that the message was not called for. And also this should be a caution for all of us because I know some of us may carry like some bias against women that are too masculine and are involved in active sports. So... I think moving forward, we should all do better. And I hope that she has learned from this experience and moving forward, she'll be able to address the situation very well.
0: I think it's quite interesting. She's, I think, taking on her nickname of Mama Samia too much of the emphasis on Mama here. I think it's not necessarily the president's role to counsel people on decisions like this. But I think this conversation reflects a deeper trend, perhaps, amongst former presidents, particularly the now late president, Magafuli, to comment on these social cultural topics in the way that she did. So she's very much following in those footsteps, more or less. It's quite interesting that she's making comments about skinny women when one of the biggest and rising concerns in Tanzania is obesity. In fact, studies suggest that over 35% of women in urban settings are obese. We also have this other public health concern that's being raised in East Africa. So I'm curious your thoughts. The issue of
1: obesity is also cultural. Those that in scientific terms are considered obese, in Africa, they are not considered obese. That is what some men appreciate in African women. When I go to the U.S. and they describe certain things as obese, what comes to mind is that that is not what people consider obese. Mm -hmm. So there are languages we use as scientists, as intellectuals that are different from how people enroll and engage them culturally. When somebody, either a man or a woman, is on the high side, people will tell you they are living good. It's a sign of good. It's a sign of headiness. Unlike in the West, whereby the sign of healthiness is to be as thin as something. When everybody is trying to fit that size of thinness. Of course, obesity is an issue that we need to address. And there are scholars that have studied this because there was an article I read about four or five months ago, thinking about how Chinese ladies, how Chinese men, they develop appreciation of certain qualities in one another. And it's a marked contrast to what plays out in Western society. And I think this is a situation that is playing out. It comes back to what is valued, what is appreciated in certain society. Of course, there are problems with these issues in terms of what is valued, in terms of what is appreciated, particularly when they are used in the sense. But that said, I think the cultural relevance, the cultural import of what we heard from Mama Samia also needs to be put into consideration for wherever it is.
2: One would need to be familiar with the African context to appreciate her comments. But again, what Peter said is completely true about it not being the role of the president to advise on cultural matters. It was coming from a place of love, from a place of concern as the mother of the nation, quote unquote, Again, however, as president, it is not her role because she is not a cultural leader. She is a political leader. And this is where the issue of political savviness comes in. How political savvy is she? Which is why I brought in the aspect of when people kept saying, was she the right person to be president? Was she ready to be president? Because it's at times like this that your critics look at you and begin to poke holes at you and say, were you ready for this office? So I think that As much as her statements were outrageous, I think that we should give her some grace. That is, if we understand where she's coming from, we do have the space to still criticize what she said from a political stance. However, I need to mention that the reactions from the stars themselves were mixed. So we do have some factions of the, the team that said, oh, they didn't care about their looks. All they cared about was the sport or they know that they need to be very athletic and build muscle to succeed. While others said they didn't really care about marriage. It's hard to know if those were defensive statements coming from a place of, okay, it is what it is. And this is how we console ourselves by saying we don't really care because as a woman, I know that we do care quite a bit about beauty and how we look. And of course, there was another faction of the team that said they felt very encouraged by her remarks because she was basically speaking in support of them. So I think, again, the mixed reactions from the team does portray the different positionalities of the team members for those who understood the cultural context. And then maybe for those who may have been offended and just just to say, well, we don't really care about how we look. But I find that quite hard to believe that anyone would, especially a woman, would not really care how she looks.
3: I just have one thing that I want to say. All of the points that you've raised make a lot of sense. And uh, there is a cultural context to it, but there's just certain things that you better just stay away from. It's just better. It's a good idea as a president to just stay away from certain comments because, like you said, there were mixed reactions. And you don't want your comments to be taken out of context, to be twisted. And especially given the fact that women have been victims of these kinds of attacks and words for as long as we've been alive. So I would say there's truth to the fact that there's a cultural context, but just don't bring it up. And especially not on that stage, on that platform. The second thing I want to say, I don't agree with people now questioning her ability to be president over this comment. Male presidents have done a lot of gaffes. They did a lot of things wrong. And I just don't see why this comment must question her ability to be the, the head of state. It's just why? Because we have stories from our own presidents that we can all share here. The things they said, a scandal that, you know, they've been involved in. So for me, I don't see this as questioning, readiness for the work. She's a highly qualified woman. I believe that she's qualified for the work. It's just a gaffe, like any other president would have done it. And yeah, she would learn from this, I hope, and do better in future.
4: What came to mind is back in Ghana, there used to be these aunties who have comments about everything, about you. So I think that she's probably coming from that angle where she wants to comment about how you look. She wants to comment about everything. This is like something that you guys have all said is more cultural. Like, I mean, you just want to make comments about something because you feel like as the grown-up person, you have the right to advise the young people. You have the right to say something about the young people. So I think that is the angle she's coming from. But... In that case, we all have to be mindful that some of these comments have caused a lot of discouragement and caused depression in people. So we have to learn as a society and stay away from commenting about everything, even though we are grown-ups and elders that want to advise everyone about everything.
0: Wonderful. And on that note, we're going to shift gears here a little bit. Thank you, Violet, for sharing what's been on your mind, a topic that we will not, uh, finish talking about in this discussion hopefully the conversation will continue but I'm curious, Gloria, what's been on your mind this week?
3: Okay, well, so what's been on my mind is the story of a young man in South Africa. His name is Romelo Shembe. He's 21 years old and he's an entrepreneur who's working hard to make a living for himself. Now, his brand of clothing is a brand that is standing against gangsterism. In his neighborhood, he lives in El Dorado Park, which is known for high levels of crime and gangsterism. And so, So Romelo, like many young people in South Africa who are struggling to get a job, has decided he will start designing these clothes. And then the message on the sweatshirts and the t-shirts that he makes is anti-gang. And so he started selling it outside of his home and people came and they started buying. And uh, it's not just the fact that He thought outside of the box to start making money. The fact that he's actually speaking out against something that has affected so many communities in South Africa. And so people have seen the work that he's doing. He's gotten a lot of support in his own community. The People who are really happy to see this work that he's doing because people are kind of tired of the same old way of life. And that's been encouraging for his community. And now he's actually moving forward with his business his business is doing well he's picked up some partnerships here and there with the mall now he can carry his merchandise and expose them at a mall in his neighborhood and that is really given him a lot of visibility. This story is just so, so uplifting and timely because South Africa right now has really high rates of unemployment, especially for youth between the ages of 15 and 34. So I'll give you some figures from stats SA, which is a statistics South Africa. It's a national statistical service for the nation. So according to statistics SA, the unemployment rate increased from 43% to 46 in the first quarter of 2021. And so right now, the official unemployment rate among youth from the age of 15 to 34 is 46%. And the unemployment rate for those who are university graduates is 9.3%. And so this is one of the major crises that the country is having to deal with at this moment. And the government is actually starting to step in in this area to do a few work to see what can work so that they can deal with the issue of unemployment. So there are certain interventions that the president, Cyril Ramaphosa, and his team have launched. So there is a program which is called the National Pathway Management Network. And that is to make it easier for young people to see where the jobs are and how to actually Connect with those jobs. And so this is some of the things that they are doing. There's more. There's a lot of initiatives that the government is trying out to figure out if they can find one or two models that can work. They want to scale those up rapidly so that they can deal with the issue of unemployment.
0: Yeah, quite interesting story, Gloria. We've been talking some time ago about the riots that were going on in South Africa and debating some of the causes, both immediate causes as well as underlying causes. And I remember one of the underlying causes that we mentioned is this youth unemployment problem. And as you've alluded to, in your explanation, it's something that's been quite structural, right? It hasn't sort of gone down tremendously. It hasn't gone down to 5% and then all of a sudden is up to 46%. It's stayed high, you know, 25%, give or take. And so Obviously, the pandemic probably plays a contributing role in terms of the increases that we see in unemployment right now, but it's always been persistently high. And so this young man is really dealing with these challenges that have been with South Africa and cities, in particular, in South Africa for some time. Ghana, what are your thoughts about Rumelo and his uh, initiative and, and this larger set of issues that he's confronting in, in South Africa?
1: It's a reflection. Of what I've always said about African youth, African youths are very high, dense in the areas of creativity, and uh, because they haven't had enabling environment, that is why many times we see the creativity used in negative direction. But this is a young man who is creating business opportunities, not just for himself. He's a job creator, out of nothing. Out of crisis, I've been involved in fighting courtesan as a student leader. You know, it's a very risky business. When you get involved in activities such as this, you know your life is on the line. Anybody can pull the trigger any moment to take you out. Because that's the life of folks who are into courtism. They live on people's blood. They kill a good number of our colleagues. You know, when we stood up, took the battle to those dangerous monsters. A lot of students, they were like, hey, this dude Kimbo." they were indifferent to this particular mission simply because the need was a dangerous mission. And that once somebody sniffs lives out of you, that's the end of the story. The remaining is the story for the grave and the year after. But for this young man, because he's fighting gastarism, creating the world of gastarism, Nobody wants to do this at all. Producing a shirt, fighting gangsterism in a gangsterism invested area where gangsterism is a pandemic, wasn't COVID 19. It takes God to do this. So I'm not just saluting the business creativity, the entrepreneurial creativity that is extraordinary. I'm also saluting the courage to fight gangsterism in a situation where An ordinary man doesn't want to engage in it. Because in most situations, it's either you belong to the gangsters or you just walk your normal way. When they say gangsters, you don't want to say a single word because you don't know somebody who is collecting information for them and you become a victim. And these guys are delicate. They live from people's blood. They are very delicate human beings. You don't want to walk their track. But see this young man is walking their track. And it's causing disruptions to them. It deserves a continent-level award. And I think we have to stand up and give him a round of applause for doing this. Bringing sanity, more security to South Africa. Bringing more sanity and lesser importation of gaslighting to history. It's not always, you know, doing a in a place. They export it too. Because sometimes when it becomes a commodity, sometimes it becomes a vehicle. For perpetrating other heinous activities, so sometimes people extend it, spot it elsewhere, just as we have come to know of cultism and the related stuff. So we should commend this young man for doing the extraordinary, and it is good that we are discussing him in a very positive way. Hopefully, other people will look in this direction to look at creative ways we can fight crimes in our neighbourhood, in our various places. Creating jobs out of fighting crime, creating more sanity out of fighting crime, and creating hope for people that when we fight crime, we can also make money in a more creative way.
0: Yeah, maybe it's not just about getting an award, as you said, Ghana, but also building livelihoods out of what he is trying to do. So I really like that point. And that's what the feature was all about, was how he was turning what was his hustle, in this particular township of Johannesburg into, you know, a money-making venture, one that can be sustaining of others and, and modeling those entrepreneurial approaches in that same community that can lower unemployment through those entrepreneurial exploits. So I'm curious, Violet, what what are your thoughts on this initiative that we see? And I know that you've Focus quite a lot on issues of entrepreneurship and and the possibilities that entrepreneurship may bring. So I'm curious, what are your thoughts?
2: For starters, I do completely agree with what Ghana has said. And I really applaud this young man's ambitions to create something meaningful for his community out of something that would be looked at as a vice, gangsterism, and then trying to create a clothing label, and then hopefully trying to create employment and change mindsets along the way. I mean, that is really commendable. And not to put a damper on everyone's spirits, but I think that the government can do better because when we think about the rates of corruption in South Africa alone, I mean, it's exponential. It's it's huge. And when I just try to think about the amount of money that I embezzled through corruption within the government, that is money that could have supported youths to create jobs and other entrepreneurial ventures. And so it's painful to see that even with the scraps that are left or with no support at all, you still see youth still struggling to make something out of their lives. And yet I think that if our leaders were more accountable and respected the national coffers a little bit more and paid more attention to the people whom they are meant to serve while in those offices, life wouldn't be this hard because we can demonize gangsterism as much as we want to, but we all know that it's created because of a void when people lack meaningful or gainful employment, I do not dispute the fact that there will always be vices within the community. But we also can take away from the fact that these vices are a result of unemployment, neglect, and many other things that come along with it. And I do think that we can do better. I know many times we as Africans depend a lot on Western aid and loans And grants, but I think that the amount of money that we get from these grants and even the the money that we do have within our own countries is substantial enough to get youth going, to get them supported within whatever entrepreneurial ventures that they choose to pursue. But I think that our governments have dropped the ball so much, and the amount of money that we are losing because of selfish gain, whether leaders are in office is enough to have given these youths a buffer. So for me, I'm still not okay with that.
3: Yeah, I uh, I totally agree with that. The situation of unemployment in South Africa is urgent and very decisive action from the government. Yes, there will always be young people who think for themselves, who fight hard to find opportunities in life. But there's still, I don't know how many Thousands and millions of young people who are struggling—they don't know what to do with life. Even though there are people who have went to school, but they still are not able to find access into the labor market. Like Violet, have said, there needs to be a really decisive action from the government and ways to scale whatever models that the government come up with as rapidly as possible. I would like to mention that. The president seems to be aware of this situation. So he created a presidential employment stimulus, which is providing work opportunities and livelihoods for many young people. But I just don't know how many young people are able to benefit from initiatives like this. And for the young men that we talked about, I fear for his security too. Gun, I'm glad that you brought that up. People operate in the area of gangsterism. They don't want to be challenged. They don't want any person who's standing in their way. I hope that he and his family are taking their security seriously.
4: Yeah, Gloria, that is really true. I like the fact that the government is taking initiative to reduce unemployment, especially in South Africa. But I also feel like more needs to be done, as Gloria has already said. There is so much that can be done to lift people out of poverty and also create more jobs. So for me, the question is always about government creating a conducive atmosphere for entrepreneurs to strive because a lot of young people in Africa are trying their best. They are creating jobs for themselves. But within a year or two, They just go out of business and you ask them what is going on. They are talking about the fact that we didn't have the necessary funds to continue our businesses. Also, like the environment is not conducive. We don't have the infrastructure support. Sometimes transporting goods from one place to the other is so hard because of bad nature of our roads. So I think that it's it's more than just creating those initiatives. You also have to think about providing the needed infrastructure, the internet, stable electricity. Imagine Nigeria has 24 hours electricity in the country every day. You will see the economic change. Some of these things is where our government needs to focus. Putting investments in the infrastructure facilities, in our education, and even our health system. Because all these things are together to help create the atmosphere where young people will strive and also do creative stuff. We have a lot of talented youth, a lot of talented people in the continent of Africa. But I mean, where is the support? Most of them do not get the support. Sometimes you, the government have all this initiative, but you ask yourself who are benefiting from this initiative. Sometimes you have to know someone in the government before you are able to take advantage of some of these things. So I believe that more needs to be done, not just creating this initiative, but putting money, investing in the infrastructure, investing in education, and actually investing in these entrepreneurship ventures of these young people. I believe that it will go a long way in providing jobs, especially as these young people have the interest and also the passion to create their own jobs and employ their friends and peers. I think that the government can do better. We also need a private sector. Like We also need a cooperation between the government and the private sector to work in creating jobs. Because creating jobs cannot be done by just the government alone. It has to be done by the private sector to everybody that is a stakeholder in building the nation.
0: A lot of foundations are putting money behind creating and putting out new entrepreneurs that are doing great and amazing things. And one of the things that you realize in talking to young entrepreneurs is that they still require a lot more support than a lot of these programs offer them, right? And I think, Eva, you mentioned the support about the infrastructure that has to be in place. But then there's also the funding that is required to even begin some sort of venture of note. And a lot of these entrepreneurship programs, they'll provide maybe five or ten thousand dollars. To start a business that would require a lot more in any context uh, to get off the ground. So I think when we think about entrepreneurs, we have to also think about the ecosystem in which they're operating in and what kind of support that they have. So we wish this young man all the best with his fashion line and the great work that he's doing in El Dorado Park. And we wish him all the best. (laughs) As we move on, we have time for one more story before we close today. So I'm going to go to you, Ghana, and I'm curious to know where are we going next? What is on your mind? It's all
1: about Mozambique. And it's all about the issue of corruption. And it's all about an issue that is connected to the issue of unemployment that we just discussed in South Africa. That's what I call the hidden debt in Mozambique. It's an issue that has caused not just national embarrassment, that has also placed Mozambique on the global map for negative reasons. And it is called In-Depth because the then president, before the ink bench, together with some leading members of his cabinet, took out a loan of 1.76 billion heroes without wow. the knowledge of folks in the parliament. And the goal was to use that to build some national infrastructure to rebuild state-owned maritime industry, the fishery sector in Mozambique. However, almost all the money was looted by the then president through one of his sons, who acted as a conduct for looting the money in the name of his father. Likewise, it was not just about the former president President Ndambi Gubuza being involved in this. It was also about the current president, Filippi Uyuzi, being also involved in this particular scandal. Filipi Uyuzi, as at the time this corruption scandal took place, was the then Minister of Defense in Mozambique. And his name has come up over and again as being involved in collecting Bribes that runs into millions of dollars. It's not just about him as well. It's also about other highly ranked individuals in the then government, including the then Minister of Finance, who is also standing trial. So this is an issue that is generating a lot of it currently in Mozambique, because those that are involved in this financial scandal, homongos financial scandal. Among us national humiliations, there were individuals that people trusted with the opportunity, with the responsibility of retooling the economy of Mozambique. However, just like the usual story that is dominant in several African countries, they looted the future of their people. The trial is ongoing, and it's an issue of national embarrassment Because for every day spent in the court, people kept saying, ha, ha, ha. The issue is so prominent to the extent that the very first proceeding was witnessed by 250 journalists. It's an issue that is unfolding and that is causing a lot of heat in Mozambique. I'd like to know what you guys got to think about whether it is possible to trust elected officials with matters of money, with matters of fighting corruption, given the drama and the danger, the emulation that is unfolding in Moputo prison, where the trial is taking place in Mozambique.
0: Well, Ghana, I gotta ask you this question, because you mentioned this at the outset. That there's this conversation ongoing that some officials, the parliament, for example, was unaware of this and what was taking place. But it's kind of interesting, and it stands to reason that perhaps they know a little bit or they did know because they are in the same political party, right? There's one dominant political party in Mozambique that has been dominant since they've gotten their independence that is the Frelimo party. And the president comes from the Frelimo party. The parliament is dominated by the Frelimo Party. And as you just mentioned, there's so many different Frelimo Party members who had their hand in what was going on. So is this really a situation where people are unaware of it? Or is it now others that are pointing fingers at those in the past for the corruption that perhaps they were aware of, they were condoning in one way or the other? Well, the thing is this, Peter.
1: We need to understand the sociology of corruption in Africa. The way it works, is this: but I understand you are stealing from the national treasury. And I understand you are one of the leaders of the parliament. I have all your duties. I have all your luggage. If I need to do something, I may not even get involved because I know I have what it takes to silence you. And I believe possibly this is what played out in the case of Mozambique. because just like you mentioned, and just like I'm expecting to happen, it's very possible that those that are standing trial they will expose the various corrupt activities of the leaders of the parliament. As of then, that is likely to happen. And it is also very possible that the leadership of the parliament was just a figurehead depending on how domineering the then president, the then leadership was all about. And the little I know about President Amanda Gibuza is that he was a very strong man when he was in power. He had has very domineering influence. And for him to have the guts, because this is 1.76 billion hero being mismanaged in the name of retooling state-owned companies. You know, it's a humongous amount of money. And for him to have gone that length, I believe the speaker or the leadership of the parliament must have done something much more horrible because those guys were also silent when that happened. What was the reaction from the parliament? And that's why they call it the hidden debt. They took out the law without the leadership of the parliament, being aware, allegedly not being aware, but we are here to see the last of the drama because it's an unfolding scandal. And for every day of the trial, journalists kept saying, "Ha! wow, really? Did it happen? Is this a drama? But the fact is, that is a sad reality. The story we need to combat in order for us to realize the potential that Africa is made up as a
0: continent. I love that term hidden debt, right, <laughs> that comes up and the timing of this is quite opportune because Mozambique had elections in 2014 and this particular incident was taking place in 2013 and 2014. And I will say those 2014 elections, although not extremely competitive, they were more competitive than in past Mozambican elections. So I love how it's sort of hidden debt that perhaps those that may not have been fully aware of it were still benefiting from it electorally or otherwise. But I'm curious your comments here, Violet, on this situation in Mozambique or just the general question that Ghana has posed for us to think about, which is, you know, how do we hold leaders accountable? What do we do when it comes to these issues of debt? And how is that debt or those decisions of leaders linked perhaps to the financial stability of the country, not just the short-term ability of leaders to get, for example, re-elected. I'm curious your thoughts, Violet.
2: Well, I think, Peter, before we even talk about holding all leaders accountable, I think it's important to acknowledge that when leaders are elected into office, their first agenda is to retain power and to win re-election before anything and everything else. Now, that said, that is going to drive their actions while in office. And again, another thing that's important to state is political parties work like cabals. There is a hierarchy and there are political godfathers and kingmakers to whom new party members who have been elected into power are beholden because if they do not endorse you, there's no way you're going to get on the party ticket. And then there's no way you're going to use the party infrastructure and all its capital to get into office. So you already are beholden to certain people. And it's likely that by the time new leaders come into office, even though they say things like, oh, when I get into office, I'm going to fight corruption. I'm going to make sure the system is straight. Loosely, it's like looking at a child playing with fire and you're like, okay, well, you're going to get burned because when you get into the system, you realize that there's already been a structure for example, of corruption that you as an individual on your own can fight and it's you either join us or we destroy you. And so you cannot start ratting out the people who are already in there because they have the power to destroy you. And so you'll find that at the end of the day, you are either complicit through your silence or you're just going to join the bandwagon and put your hand in the cookie jar as well. So I think that it's possible that as We get new leaders elected into office. Their intentions are actually good. But when they get in there, they can't fight the machine because the machine is much bigger than them, much more powerful and much more dangerous. And so you either have to join them or somehow you're going to find yourself out. And yet your first goal is to retain power and hopefully get reelected. So knowing that in mind, now you begin to think about how to hold our leaders accountable. Now, then the picture changes altogether. Because when you think about all these complexities on one hand, and then you think about our people on the other hand, again, I think I have said this before, and I do not mean any disrespect, but our leaders are a reflection of us. And I'm sorry to say, but for the average person in Africa, they're mostly concerned with their daily living. If you look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, they're really at the bottom of the pyramid. They're concerned about whether they have shelter, whether they have food, basic needs. They are not concerned with what's going on up there in the positions of power. And then during election time, these people are hoodwinked with, again, things that are very low level, like food, soap, very little money for their vote. So they are always concerned with the basic needs. And so the little crumbs that come down, that trickle down to them, keep them very busy, scrambling for that. And they do not pay attention to the big picture of what's really happening up here. So it's very hard to start fighting corruption and holding our leaders accountable if we are preoccupied with basic needs. So now when you look at the average person and you acknowledge the fact that they are preoccupied with their basic needs, and that's the majority of the population, that leaves the people who are supposed to be held accountable with a wide bath to do as they please. So when do we even hold our leaders accountable? Because to be able to hold our leaders accountable, the people themselves have to be empowered to a point whereby They're at a certain point of the pyramid whereby their basic needs are fulfilled, such that they have time to look at higher level needs, like paying attention to what their leaders are doing or not being intimidated by what their leaders could do to them as repercussions for asking questions about why things are the way they are. Before we begin to think about why we are not holding our leaders accountable or how we could hold our leaders accountable, we need to ask the question of, are we in position to even hold our leaders accountable?
3: Those are very good points that you bring up, Violet. I wouldn't speak for every country, but what I've seen in my own country, in the Congo, the people that have come to power are not people who are rich. They came from very poor background. Like you said, every person at that level will be concerned with their well-being, their children. But I just feel like at a certain point, corruption just becomes an addiction, a disease, because they don't stay poor forever. Five years into power, eight, ten years, they've usually have increased a lot of wealth. They have a lot of opportunities. The kids are doing well. At that point, you can't claim that I'm still concerned with my basic needs. So it comes a point where it just becomes something that becomes deeply ingrained in who we have become as a people. And even when for those who reach reached a certain point where they're doing pretty much well in life, but they'll still continue to do the same things. At that point, I feel like it becomes a major issue, a mentality that needs to be Addressed and dealt with at all levels. And then, in the case of Mozambique specifically, like you rightly said, somebody who hasn't had food wouldn't bother keeping the government accountable. And so, in this case, the reason why we even have a case going on is because IMF did put pressure on them. The people lending the money were able to be in that position of holding them accountable. And so, I don't know, I would say that people lending the money should have methods or whatever processes in place to make sure that money reaches to the right people and if it doesn't then whoever received the money should be held accountable.
2: Gloria I do agree with what you said actually recently we had someone who was running for member of parliament in Uganda he's called Katol Obama he's a former comedian but when he was running for office his slogan was literally elect me so that I can also go and eat literally And then when he won the first term after five years, when he was running for office again, he said, now elect me so that we can eat. So these five years I have eaten. So for the next five years now, I'm going to share with you. And I'm looking at this man and I'm like, really? And when he was not elected back into office, he was really really bitter. He felt so entitled to the office. And unfortunately, that's something that I've seen with a lot of our leaders. They feel entitled to those offices once they get in there, because in fact, they take it as an insult if they're elected out of those offices and they forget that they are holding them on behalf of the people they are there to serve and not to enrich themselves. Unfortunately, when they come into office, their first agenda is like I said, to get reelected and then to also enrich themselves. And unfortunately, it has become a culture. Someone once told me that human nature is by default selfish and they'll look out for themselves, you know, before they look out for anyone else. But it's called public service for a reason. And I think that we are failing to acknowledge that part about it being public service. And I don't want to sound pessimistic, but I still think that And like Gloria, you rightly mentioned that the reason why right now that case is being prosecuted is because the people who lent the money out were the ones who raised the alarm. So let's assume that they didn't even raise the alarm. I mean, nothing would be happening. And this is the case in so many countries where there's a lot of corruption going on, but nobody can speak up, especially for More authoritarian countries, as I'm sure some of you know, some of the countries that I'm talking about, where you wouldn't even be feeling comfortable to say anything. Many times when I hear stories like this, I'm more hopeless than hopeful, at least for now. I need some hope. Actually, most
4: of the things you've said is very, very true because there's this mentality or this mindset in our society that if you want to get rich, go into politics. So even in society... If people go into politics and we see that they are doing the right thing, we start questioning them. You're an MP and you are taking throttle and you are taking commercial vehicles to work. You're an MP and you don't have your own car. You're an, an MP and you are walking. So this societal pressure also contributes to corruption. Because there's this image that if you're an MP or you're a politician, you should have this amount of money or you should have this amount of cars, houses. You should wear certain kinds of clothes. You should even drive certain kinds of cars. So it's too much pressure on our leaders. And these are things that society has spent from them. So MPs are not really paid much. They also have to maintain their status by going behind closed doors, coming out with shady deals and taking the money to continue to impress people that they are in politics. They made it. So it's even hard for us in the first place to hold them accountable because we ourselves are putting this unnecessary pressure on them that you are an MP. We want to see you riding this amount of money. Could you believe that in this period of COVID-19, actually in Ghana, the Minister of Finance approved over 28 million loan for MPs to buy cars? When... Our public health system is in crisis. Our education system is in crisis. And they are able to get money to buy cars. And you are thinking, where is our priority? And also, you also have to come to the point that, quote, unquote, we put too much pressure on our MPs. We want them to live according to certain standard. And I remember recently an MP in Ghana they were asking him about this amount of money and one of the questions he said was that you know that I attend a lot of funerals and going to funeral is part of my job as an MP because my constituents want me to be there and I have to be there because if I don't go you know they may feel like I don't support them you know and also when you go to all these funerals and all these weddings and all these social ceremonies they expect you to give big donations if you give like say ten dollars, They will not be happy with you. So you also want to impress them by giving $1,000, $2,000 and things like that. And at the end of the day, where do you get the money? Corruption. So I also think that as a society, we also have to change our mindset. We also have to begin to make these people serve. That is why we call them public servants. We elected them there to serve us. We elected them there to come and transform our society. But we didn't elect them there to become big. And when they are living a certain lifestyle, we are applauding them. And when they are not, we feel like, oh, they are not doing the right thing. So I also think that we all need a change of mindset. In the first place, we also need to understand what is the role of the politician and what is the role of the president and all this. We all need to understand that their role is to help build the nation and to serve us, not the other way around. They are using our taxpayers' money to enrich themselves. When we still have poor roads, we still have children learning under trees. So I hope that moving forward, I believe that the right thing will be done in such the case that the government will be able to retrieve the money and also persecute these people that they should face the full branch of the law. Otherwise, this trend is going to continue.
0: A change of mindsets, but also a change in the way that redistribution works, right? From individual redistribution to national policies that actually redistribute in regular ways, and across the country in even ways as well. It sounds like that's also important here, but that's all the time we have for today. But we'd like to thank you for joining us. We hope that you'll join us again for our next episode of Leaders of Africa's This Week. Make sure to subscribe to Leaders of Africa's This Week in your favorite podcast app and on YouTube. We are on Apple iTunes, Google Podcasts, and more. New episodes arrive bi-weekly on Wednesdays. Join our Discord community and follow Leaders of Africa on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram for all new and great content. And that's all we have for this week. We are now on to next week. Take care and bye-bye.